Welcome to the review of democracy, the journal of the CEU Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications concerning the past, present, and future of democracies across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso, and it is my very special pleasure to be hosting Yaroslav Trofimov today. Welcome to the show, Yaroslav, and thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Great to be on the show. Great to have you. Uh, by way of a brief introduction, Yaroslav Trofimov is the chief foreign affairs correspondent of the Wall Street Journal. He has reported on most major conflicts of the past uh, two decades, and his current work focuses on the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. Yaroslav Trofimov is the author of two previous books, and he was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting, uh, both in 2022 and then in 2023. Uh, now, his uh, third new book is out this month, which is uh, January 2024, and it's titled Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. This book covers in substantial detail and uh, great depth the first year of the uh, gravely escalated Russian war of aggression against Ukraine that was launched uh, back in February 2022. And it offers a hugely impressive attempt of close reporting and also discusses numerous uh, little-known aspects of this ongoing war. It is really a gripping uh, read, and I'm thrilled uh, to have the chance to discuss it with its author. So having said all that, I wanted to start by asking you, Yaroslav, what may have struck you the most about the attitudes and the reactions of members of Ukrainian society since the beginning of this Russian escalation? Well, thank you so much for this introduction. And yes, as you have said, you know, I have spent much of my career covering wars and mayhem around the world. And I was in Kabul in Afghanistan in August uh, 2021 when uh, the Afghan government collapsed overnight. And I remember watching President Ashraf Ghani to the outskirts of the city the evening of uh, August 14th that year, briefing the troops, pledging resistance, you know, saying we will fight and fight. And then the next morning, he just uh, got into a helicopter and escaped the country. And, and the regime, the government collapsed, and the Taliban were walking past my hotel uh, by lunchtime. And when I was in Kiev uh, on February 24th, 2022, you know, very half a year later, you know, there was a fear in the back of my mind. I was thinking, what, what will happen? Because obviously, yes, you know, we all had belief that Ukraine will resist. Uh, but, you know, when wars happen, when this uh, uh, trying circumstances emerge, you know, you never know. People's character really doesn't manifest itself until they are under this kind of pressure. You know, there's a famous saying that, you know, wars open people's uh, characters like tin cans. You cannot see what's inside until, until they are tested. And so uh, President Zelensky was not President Ghani. He did not escape. He was offered to escape by a lot of people, including Western leaders. Instead, he stayed and decided to fight. And I think the fact that he fought, the fact that he inspired others to fight was a critical ingredient in how Ukraine wasn't uh, overrun in the first uh, days of the war. And I remember telling my friends that I was with at the time that if Kiev holds out for three or five days, then it's going to hold out. Because by then, uh, you know, there will be mobilization of the society. There will be Western aid finally starting to come. You know, the aid that, let's remember, was denied pretty much before the war began. And, 
and so the Russian war machine will grind to a halt. And that, that is what happened. And these first days were really crucial uh, for Ukraine's survival. Uh, fantastic. Now, as a member of a small team, uh, you have crisscrossed Ukraine and reported from a host of key locations mm -hmm. of this conflict. So could I ask you how you have chosen the locations where you really wanted to be and what exactly you were trying to find out in those different places? Yeah, so obviously in the beginning we're in Kiev, but once it became clear that Kiev is holding, we uh, went to Kharkiv, which is the second largest city of Ukraine and the city that was really battered in a way that Kiev was not. You know, the Russians really unleashed all they could. You know, the northern residential areas of Kharkiv were basically destroyed wholesale, you know, flattened by artillery fire. And, uh, and the city center of Kharkiv was uh, targeted by missile strikes that destroyed a lot of the uh, a lot of that city center. And so we're, I think, the first Western journalists who made their way to Kharkiv in early uh, March of the war. And, uh, you know, it was just it was sort of driven by, you know, we have to see, we have to report what's going on. And that was the principle then all along. How far can we push uh, safely enough? And... How can we tell the story? So, you know, uh, we went to Bakhmut, obviously, a lot of times throughout the Battle of Bakhmut. We went uh, all over Donbass. We were, uh, you know, in the Kherson battlefields, in Zaporizhia. So pretty much the entire front line, there isn't really a single town there that uh, I, I haven't visited uh, while reporting for this book. Uh, fantastic. And I think that's also what makes this book such an impressive uh, read that you really get to get to read about all the major events from from an angle, which which I think has remained uh, fairly unknown, despite all the attention uh, that has been paid uh, to this conflict in, in much of the international media. Now, you also come from Ukraine, I should mention. You you, you grew up there in, in Kiev. Uh, and you have, of course, as you mentioned earlier, you have reported from a host of other countries on, on various continents. So how would you compare this war and also the possibilities of reporting on it with your previous uh, experiences? And has it made any difference for you that now you're really reporting on a major war of aggression in your own country of origin? Well, of course, psychologically, it's a completely different thing to be writing about, uh, you know, a country so to be writing about a war on a country where you were born, where you grew up, you know, being in Kiev in these first days, uh, you know, walking the streets that are empty and and seeing Russian missiles you know, hit the park when I had my first kiss, you know, target the hospital, you know, where I used to go when I was a child to check my eyes out. Obviously, psychologically, it's very hard. And uh, professionally, obviously, one of the skills that allows you to cover wars is you try to put a filter between yourself and reality not get involved emotionally too much because otherwise you just can't function. It's dangerous. And so, but that only works up to a point. And I remember having this, this feeling of personal insult, sort of how dare they, you know? Uh, but I guess the other side of covering a war in your own country is that, you know, I do speak various languages in other wars, you know, and so I could communicate directly to people, but still sort of this visceral understanding of, you know, the very, you know, the any every of everything people say, you know, the meaning behind, you know, throwaway phrase, the, uh, you know, just the sort of connection to people is, is on a different level if it's your own country. And so I think uh, I was much more clear eyed and could understand a lot of more of the nuance of what people were saying, what they were feeling, experiencing, 
than, for example, when I was covering wars in Iraq or in Afghanistan or in, in you know, Israel and Palestine, for example. Uh, great. Let us perhaps discuss some more general uh, questions regarding uh, the war and its unfolding as well. One thing you emphasize very clearly in a way throughout the book is that Ukraine turned out to be much stronger uh, than, than we could hope and that Russia actually has proven significantly uh, weaker than, than had, had been feared. Uh, so having observed the conflict from, from so close by and having also had access to uh, key participants, how would you account for that very fortunate refutation of our expectations? I think the expectations about the Ukraine, the war, were sort of going like a yo-yo throughout the conflict. You know, it's kind of it's this alternation of over-optimism and excessive despair that we still see now. You know, now we're sort of in the despair phase again. I think uh, nobody outside of Ukraine really believed that Ukraine would be able to hold out when the war began. You know, the U.S. embassy was also closed. The American diplomats withdrew. In all the NATO capitals, you know, the intelligence brief was that, you know, it will be a matter of days before Ukraine collapses. So everybody had given up on it. I remember speaking to the Ukrainian foreign minister, Kuleba, who was in Washington uh, just before the war began. He said when he went to see President Biden in the White House, you know, it was smiles and handshakes. But he said it was like being given a verdict of uh, stage four terminal cancer. And it was sort of the greetings were the farewells, really. And so uh, Ukraine has proven that it has a much more resilient state than people have thought. Yes, you know, there was corruption, there was political backstabbing. There were lots of things happened in Ukraine before the war. But the state and the society coalesced together and turned to be a lot less corrupt and a lot less bickering than people had imagined. And... In a way, because of the inoculation of the war in 2014, you know, people knew what they're dealing with. You know, there was, and there still is, this you know, tradition of volunteering, a tradition of helping the military. Uh, you know, uh, this culture of the military had changed dramatically in those eight years. Uh, you know, it, it's not a Soviet military. You know, because basically, what what Putin had thought would be a big Soviet military confronting a small Soviet military in which case a small Soviet military gets crushed. And instead, he was confronting a military that had undergone a radical transformation, implemented a lot of the uh, NATO doctrine, you know, such as mission command, which is you know, giving a lot more initiative and, and freedom to uh, operational units at the lower levels, something that is only probably possible in a democracy because you have trust inherent in a democratic society. And, and just, uh, you know, people's initiatives. So he was not fighting a small Soviet army, he was fighting a society. Having said all that, you know, the Russians have learned. You know, they're not doing the things that they were doing in the beginning of the war. They have very wisely decided to entrench themselves in the summer of 2022, you know, when Surovikin was named uh, commander of the Russian military in Ukraine, and digging all these fortifications, trenches, minefields that were successful in stopping uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the summer of 2023. Uh, so uh, right now, Ukraine, again, is running low on ammunition because of problems with the Western funding, problems with American, especially American funding and the political process in the US. And the Russians are trying to be in the offensive again. So Russia, obviously, is a much bigger country in terms of population and especially in terms of its ability to produce ammunition and weapons. 
And so, uh, you know, the enemies have not been banished yet and, and the war still goes on. Uh, yes, I definitely want to return uh, to the question of prospects uh, towards the end of our conversation. But before we would, we would get there, I wanted to ask you a bit more about how you see the Russian war aims and, and what you have found out about its conduct of this major war of aggression. You show um, in, in terrible detail, so to say, that, that Bucha hasn't actually been exceptional. Uh, so could you say a bit about what Russia has aimed to achieve? And then what, what your reporting about mass crimes has, has found, how would you describe the scale of destruction that Russia has wrought since the beginning of the, of the escalation? So uh, I think Russian war aims have not changed. Uh, the Russian war aim is the destruction of the Ukrainian state and the annihilation of the Ukrainian nation, culture, language, elites. You know, they were pretty open about these aims. Uh, you know, there are all these articles in Russian state media saying how, you know, once they take Kiev, they need to basically uh, physically destroy the elites of the, you know, Ukrainian idea. So and going back to Stalin's ways of, you know, killing hundreds of thousands of intellectuals. And you know, Dmitry Medvedev, you know, the former Russian president and uh, the deputy head of the National Security Council, was very open about this during the Russian National Day celebrations uh, just a few months ago, when he put up a picture on Telegram of the Russian flag uh, flying on Kiev's central Maidan Square. Uh, so uh, Putin himself, you know, just recently said that you know Odessa and many other parts of Ukraine are Russian cities should be back in Russian hands. So I think as far as the goals of Russia. They're still the same. Problem for Russia is that it didn't have the means to achieve these goals. It was beaten in the battlefield. And it's still, you know, they can talk about taking Kiev, but it's it's taken them more than a year to take the small town of Avdiivka, which they still haven't taken. Speaking about atrocities, the worst atrocities happened in the beginning. Because to have atrocities, you need to have civilians, you need to have this rapid thrust of the Russian armies. And so we know a great deal about what happened in Bucha because the Russians had to flee Bucha because they failed their offensive in northern Ukraine and they uh, fled so fast that they couldn't really disguise the evidence. So once the Ukrainian uh, army recaptured Bucha at the end of March uh, 2022, you know, they found you know, 450 plus uh, corpses, you know, people tortured, eyes gouged out, you know, shot in the back of the head. You know, just just you know the most vile atrocities you can imagine by the soldiers to whom then Putin issued awards, and the Russian government has until now denied that anything untoward has ever happened in Bucha. And, you know, Medinsky, the uh, chief Russian negotiator, even said that you know Ukraine made up the massacre in Bucha because it rhymes with the English word butcher. Uh, you know, just have to think how twisted this thinking is in Moscow. And then, of course, there was Mariupol. You know, nobody knows exactly what happened in Mariupol, because Mariupol was surrounded by uh, Russian forces uh, within a few days of the war's beginning. Uh, the last independent journalists uh, from Associated Press left a few weeks later. And then there was just no one to watch uh, the massacres that were being committed by Russia, which indiscriminately bombed the city. You know, they, you know, they targeted a hospital full of, full of refugees, uh, they had a theater full of children. You know, the city was pretty much obliterated. So we don't know how many people died there. Could be 25,000 people, could be 70,000 people, definitely tens of thousands of people. And it was by far the worst uh, loss of life uh, in Ukraine uh, during the war, it was Mariupol. 
and the Russia, after they, they took the city, they just raised the entire neighborhoods, bulldozed uh, all the evidence. So all these corpses are still there in the rubble. But that sort of marked the end of rapid Russian advances. You know, Russia and the Russians really didn't move forward quickly anywhere uh, since uh, the late spring of 2022. And when they did advance in places like Bakhmut, uh, by the time they took it, uh, the Ukrainian government had withdrawn, evacuated the population. They were, if there were five or 10 civilians left in Bakhmut when the Russians took it, it's probably an exaggeration. You know, the, the, the cities were empty ruins uh, because of the Russian way of war. You know, the Russians would just use artillery to pound and pound and pound and destroy the cities and then move in into, into the rubble. That, that's the story of Bakhmut, that's the story of uh, Popasina, that's the story of Lysychaska, Severodonetsk. And that's, so because of that now, we're not really seeing this extent of civilian casualties and human rights abuses that we saw in the early days of the war. And obviously, you know, things are still happening in the occupied territories. Uh, there is no independent press allowed. Uh, there is no uh, human rights organizations allowed. Now, Ukrainian children are being taken to Russia, but uh, because there is no fighting there, there is no not much of an organized insurgency either. You know, you're not seeing Bucha-like uh, atrocities now uh, at this stage of the war. Uh, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen if the Russia were to break through. And uh, you know, Ukrainians are fighting as hard as they are because they're certain that you know, if Russia were suddenly to break the front line and capture Kharkiv or Zaporizhia. You know, there will be another Bucha and another round of bloodshed and uh, exactions and atrocities uh, that is inevitable considering, you know, if you look at the history of this war, but also the history of uh, Russia trying to suppress Ukrainian identity over the centuries. Thank you so much for that uh, substantial response. I also wanted us to return to something you, you briefly mentioned earlier, which is a very important question, the question of Western commitment and Western support. You cite uh, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, who has complained that there is kind of a perverse logic uh, to Western support, right? When there is a major crisis uh, in Ukraine, then support uh, for the country increases. But whenever uh, breakthroughs could really be achieved, then support suddenly remains uh, limited. So, so, so those uh, breakthroughs actually cannot be achieved. So how would you describe the relationship between the Ukrainian leadership on the one hand and its Western supporters on the other? How has this relationship evolved since, since February 2022? Well, you know, at the beginning of the war, Ukraine was on its own. You know, the only ambassador that stayed in Kiev, the only NATO ambassador that stayed in Kiev through the war was the Polish one. And Polish, uh, the Polish government and the Polish people were really outliers in terms of providing help in those early days. Then, you know, once the West realized that Ukraine is not collapsing, obviously, you know, they started first by supplying, you know, light weapons, such as, you know, portable uh, missiles against tanks and, and aircraft. And eventually, uh, towards the summer of 2022, Western made heavy weapons, first artillery and artillery shells, then HIMARS, which proved a very efficient weapon in the hands of the Ukrainian troops by destroying Russian supply lines. And then, uh, kind of a bit too late, by the time that uh, Russia had already entrenched itself in the early part of 2023, uh, tanks and uh, fighting vehicles such as you know Bradleys and Strikers and Leopards and the uh, combat aircraft uh, 
the F-16s are still in the pipeline and delivery is uh, unclear. And I think a lot of that was driven by fears of Russian response and especially the nuclear response, because Russia, let's remember, in the very first day of the war, in the morning when Putin announced his so-called special military operation, he said, you know, I'm warning the West, do not interfere, because otherwise you will see a response to the likes you have never seen in your entire lifetime. And this caused a great deal of self-deterrence on the part of the West, especially at critical moments, uh, such as September 2022, when Ukraine was on the offensive, broke through the lines, in Kharkiv, was, was retaking uh, parts of Donbass, was advancing in Kherson, and the Russian army was about to collapse. And at that critical point, Putin started making nuclear threats. If you remember, in September, Russia annexed four Ukrainian regions to be actually control in full. And Putin said, it's not a bluff. Now, now that these regions are Russia, we will use all the means at our disposal, you know, which was a pretty open nuclear hint. And American officials tell me this is the moment where they fear that the nuclear stability of a Russian nuclear strike is at its highest. And so they really start to calm down the Russians. Support for Ukraine was curtailed at the time. Ukrainian request for more ammunition, more artillery, and certainly for tanks were denied at the time. And Ukraine really lost uh, this historical opportunity. Because let's remember, in September, October 2022, Russia had maybe 100,000 combat troops in all of Ukraine, uh, battered, you know, with lots of casualties, under-equipped, and Putin, because he had been unwilling to accept the idea that his special military operation is not going to plan, had been refusing mobilization. So this was really the moment to strike to break through. But there was a fear in Washington uh, that a catastrophic collapse of the Russian army would be one of the triggers for Russian nuclear response. And so Ukraine wasn't allowed, wasn't supplied with enough uh, material to really exploit this catastrophic breakthrough that was within reach at the time. And uh, then it just became too late. You know, Putin mobilized hundreds of thousands of men. And by the time Ukraine launched it, its counteroffensive, uh, the following summer, it was a bloody slog that didn't achieve breakthroughs. And the historical opportunity was lost. Uh, yes, indeed. Now, you conclude the book by stating that uh, Ukraine had won the war for its independence and wouldn't disappear from the map. But then you also close the epilogue uh, with the words, a long, grueling fight lay ahead. So were there perhaps any major surprises for you since uh, February 2023, where the book basically uh, closes? And how do you see the prospects now, uh, nearly a year later? Yeah, well, I think that despite uh, you know, despite the fact that Putin has not given up on his original idea, the battle now is over where the boundaries of Ukraine will lay. I mean, will Ukraine include the Donbass or not? Will Ukraine include the coast of Zaporizhia or not? So the question is really about the configuration of Ukraine. And as we are speaking, about 18% of Ukraine is occupied by Russia. That includes uh, areas that were occupied uh, almost 10 years ago, that includes Crimea and, and Donetsk and Lugansk cities. So 80% of Ukraine, more than 80% of Ukraine is free and under government control. And it doesn't look like in the foreseeable future, the Ukrainian statehood and the Ukrainian independence could really be destroyed by Putin. But uh, it's, 
you know, the war is difficult. Lots of Ukrainians are dying every day, partially because they don't have enough ammunition because of uh, disagreements about funding in the United States and because European nations had not uh, really moved fast enough to ramp up their own military industries. You know, the European Union was supposed to provide a million shells in 2023 and barely provided a third of that. Uh, so all that matters. Uh, but Ukraine uh, has won the war of independence. It has not won the war of territorial integrity. Great. Uh, thank you so much for that illuminating uh, response and for being on the show today, Yaroslav. Great to be on the show, and I hope uh, your listeners like the book. Thank you so much. Once again, I have been discussing with Yaroslav Trofimov today, whose outstanding uh, new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, has just been released. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about this essential publication. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.